We want to turn now in our Bibles to seventh chapter of the book of Mark. And as we begin this morning, we're going to cover again the first 13 verses in terms of our reading, because it will pertain to the message this morning, but we're going to focus upon verses 14 through 23 primarily. So Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 23 for our scripture reading this morning. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us the doctrines the commandments of men, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the peoples, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you might give to us this morning your Holy Spirit to Instruct us and teach us out of the scriptures. We know, Father, that uh, if during Jesus' own life and ministry, uh, when he had spoken, the people did not understand, and even his disciples, to whom he had given more intensive instruction, often did not understand, how much, Lord, then we need your Holy Spirit to open up our hearts and minds to understand the things which Jesus taught, the things that Mark has recorded, the very things that we find in the scriptures. And so this is what we pray for this morning. Move upon us with your Holy Spirit, such a spirit of understanding and wisdom, that we may gain from your word 
that you will enable us to follow you more faithfully. This we would pray that we as Christians might be salt and light to this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this morning, I want to begin with a very simple but necessary lesson in ethics. Just a very basic distinction that one must have in order to understand what does it mean to be ethical? What does it mean to understand right and wrong, right and wrong behavior? In, in every human act of evil, this is where I'm beginning on the negative side, with every, in every human act of evil, there are two parts. The two parts are, first, the person who did the evil, and secondly, the evil thing which he has done. In ethics, we call this agent and action. Now, you can have no true understanding of human evil or of human good without looking at both. We need to know when a person acts whether his action was good or evil, but we must also know whether the person's motive was good or evil, the very reason behind the action that has been performed. We might look at it this way. Just as we as human beings are composed of two things, we are body and soul. We are physical and metaphysical. As C.S. Lewis would say, we have this animal part and we have this angelic part. We have the part that's physical and, and visible, and we have the part that's entirely invisible. We are body and soul. And therefore, we have activities that can be done instrumentally through the body, and then we have the inner side of us, which is in the Bible called the soul or the heart, which, as we see what Jesus is going to say, is, in fact, the very seat of everything. Now, the reason why we need this basic lesson to start with is because it, it, it enables us to understand legalism in a much, much better perspective. Um, unless we can understand that all understanding of good and evil involves both actions and agent, and when we talk about agent, we're talking about his inner motivations, his inner reasons, the things we can't see but a stand behind every kind of action. Unless we can understand both, we can't really understand what is going on in this passage or really understand the Bible's argument or Jesus' great campaign against the legalism of the Pharisees. So the thrust of this passage, from what I want us to understand this morning, can be stated this way. Once again, we're concerned about the evil of the legalistic religion of the Pharisees which they have incorporated, which they have inherited from the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders, which goes centuries back before the time of the Pharisees. We have to understand that the evil of legalistic uh, uh, religion is to be found in how it misses and how it disguises the true condition of human beings before God. And that leads then to a bigger issue, it leads to a large gospel issue that can be stated this way. If there is a false understanding of how and why human beings are separated from and estranged from God, if there is a false understanding of what their true condition actually is, then we can never have any real understanding of the way back. If, if we're unable to say how we are wrong with God, we will never understand how it is to be made right 
with God. And that's the burden of this passage this morning. The burden of my message is to present how the legalism that we find in the tradition of the elders fosters this false understanding of good and evil. How Jesus stated where the real problem is and then how that helps us to see the gospel in the proper perspective. Now, in the last message, we focused upon the kind of damage which legalism does uh, to three particular things. Looking at the first 13 verses, uh, Jesus pointed out, we were able to see in what Jesus says, that legalism will cancel worship. If you're legalistic in your professed religion, you will, in fact, cancel out true worship of God. We also saw, though, that this legalism has the insidious effect of canceling out the lordship of God himself. Because legalism places man-made laws or man-made interpretations of the law of God above the actual intentions of God to sanctify and to make people holy. Uh, the third thing we saw is that legalism, by its very nature, cancels the gospel. Uh, to be made right with God by keeping the law is the most, it's bad news. It's the worst possible news you can possibly have. And, of course, it's opposite, contrary, completely contradictory to the gospel itself. It says we are saved not by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. So that's what we were looking at that last week. But this passage has so much to say to us that we're looking at it again this week in order to try to understand what is going on here with legalism, how does it see what is humanly evil, and then what is the trajectory of Jesus' remarks in order to get us to where we need to understand these things clearly. So we'll cover the first 13 verses again, but from this different perspective, we'll move on to look at verses 14 through 23, and we're going to have to come back to this passage again next week to say everything that I think needs to be said about the things that are of great concern in this passage. Now, this morning, three things I want us to try to cover in terms of what Jesus is saying. First is going to be this. With respect to this legalism, Evil is wrongly defined when it's defined as a failure to follow a written code. If that's how we understand evil, it's wrongly defined. Secondly, evil, which truly defiles a human being, is not going to be found in the externals. And then thirdly, human evil is most essentially a matter of the human heart. Now, begin with quickly revisiting verses 1 through 11, um, and we're going to sum up the fatal flaw of legalism as we find it in those verses which Jesus, dealing with the Pharisees and the traditions of the elders, discussed last week, is this. <clears throat> the Pharisees taught that everything with respect to good and evil is a matter of strict obedience to a code, a law code. Now, we know as we've looked, as we've looked at this, even as we've covered through the earlier chapters of the Gospel of Mark, the Pharisees followed what was called the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders. And these were, in fact, man-made interpretations of the laws of Moses placed on top of the laws of Moses so that many times what was said in the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders, only vaguely looked like the word of God. But it was the fact that the, the uh, Pharisees and the, and the rabbis took their oral tradition to be equal in authority to, even superior to, the authority of the scriptures. We saw that last week from a quote from the Mishnah, that it was more sinful to break the laws of the traditions of the elders than it was even to break the laws of the scriptures. Now, here is the problem. Evil is seen to be, wrongly seen to be, some kind of failure to follow 
the external code. Now, that's why the Pharisees are condemning Jesus' disciples. The Pharisees see some of Jesus' disciples not washing their hands properly before they were eating food. That commandment is not in the law of Moses, by the way. Nowhere in the law of Moses does it say that if you eat your food with hands that you haven't properly washed, you have now become morally defiled or unclean. But it was a law of the tradition of the elders that that was the case. Uh, The tradition, then, more binding than the Scripture, the tradition more severe than the Scriptures, the tradition basically condemning, condemning the disciples of Jesus, you didn't wash your hands. Now, I just want to step back here and say that we look at this hand-washing thing and we say, boy, that is so picky. But some of the things involved in the tradition of the elders dealt with more profound kinds of ideas. So think back in terms of what Jesus did on the Sabbath. There was that time in the synagogue on the Sabbath when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand. And in that confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus said, I'm asking you, Is it proper to do evil or to do good on the Sabbath? Pharisees remained silent because it was a total catch-22, whatever they said. If they said, it's proper to do good, Jesus said, then I'm going to heal the man. But see, healing the man on the Sabbath, in their view, was a work. And any work you did violated the Sabbath. But if they said, it's proper to do evil on the Sabbath, they would have been caught that way too. So they remained silent. Jesus heals them. But the point was that their interpretation of the Sabbath was more important than actually doing something that the Sabbath always wanted us to do, and that is to do the goodness of mercy on the Lord's day. So, from big things to little things, the oral tradition had set up a code. Big things to little things. You violate this code. That is what is evil. So, that's the heart of legalism. Evil exists when you violate the behavioral code. Now, the consequence of that is that evil then is only found in behavioral violations of the code. Where does evil exist? Evil exists when you do something that doesn't match the code of behavior you're supposed to do. Evil is only found in what a person does or activity of the mouth, what a person says. Now, when you locate evil only in the actions of the body, in behavior, this means that the motivations behind the actions are excluded. That was Jesus' point on the Sabbath. His whole point was, I'm intending to do good. Nope, you're violating the law. If you violate the law, the law of the tribe, the law of the traditions of the elders. If you violate the law, it's evil. So they basically looked at this from the standpoint, the tribe, the tribe, the elders and the traditions, they basically looked at this and excluded the heart. They excluded the, the motivations. They excluded the reasons for why someone would do something. And the converse was true. That is to say, if your actions perfectly follow the moral code, then what you do is good. What you do is praiseworthy. It doesn't matter why you do it. Just do it. What counts in the final analysis is only what you do. Now, that's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. 
because Jesus says, you're doing all sorts of activities that supposedly honor God, but your hearts are far from honoring God. And so Jesus says that when your activity, what you do, uh, is done so that people think you're pleasing God, people think you're obeying God, people think you're doing good, but inside your heart is not in the same place your actions are, you are in fact a hypocrite. And by virtue of that statement, Jesus says you stand condemned. So, verses 1 through 13, that's the summary. The problem with legalism, the chief problem with legalism is the conviction that all morality, good and evil, reside only in human behavior. That one doesn't have to consider what a person is going through inside. Now, I submit to you, legalism is pervasive among those who don't know Christians. It is there constantly among those who don't know Christians. It's not what people are doing inside with their hearts and thoughts and lives. It's only their outward actions. The common thing I've heard over the last 40 years is, I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. And of course, that means then that I can have anger, hatred, murderous thoughts in my heart toward you, but if I never act upon it, I'm perfectly good with respect to you. Now, that's a very sad perspective on what moral goodness is all about. Now, now to the second part, we get into verses 14 through 20. So Jesus is going to speak to the disciples. He's going to speak, first of all, to the people at large, then to his disciples. His message is going to be this. The evil which truly defiles a human being is not found in external things nor in external behavior. Now, the evil that defiles... He's not saying that external actions are not necessary. He's not saying that external actions can't be evil. No. What he's saying is, is that the evil which defiles a human being is not found in external actions, external things. He's going to address in this, this idea of defilement. He's going to claim that moral defilement cannot happen or occur from the outside to the inside. Remember, the, the, the idea of moral defilement is you become morally defiled. So something you do causes you as the person to become defiled. And Jesus is going to say, uh, moral defilement doesn't come from your contact with the outside world. What is out there, what on the outside, will not cause moral defilement on the inside. So he's going to present this. But that's the contrary, of course, of what the rabbi said. That's contrary to the tradition of the elders. They essentially said that, no, God's laws say that you come in contact with something unclean, you become unclean. You come in contact with something that's uh, defiled, you become defiled. Personal contact with things defiles you. That was their conviction. That's not really what the Old Testament laws actually taught because the tradition of the elders took this clean and unclean distinction of the Old Testament and turned it into a moral category what had been a category to separate the Jews culturally, to keep the Jews from assimilation into the other peoples, became not just that kind of a distinction of national identity, but in the minds of the rabbis, it became a moral distinction. 
because we're not supposed to eat their food, because we're not supposed to touch them, it's because we are better and holier than them. But if we do touch them, if we do involve ourselves with them, we become morally defiled. So that's why then this whole episode here about the disciples eating with unwashed hands caused the Pharisees to think Jesus' disciples constantly are polluting themselves morally by their conduct, their external conduct. Now, so what goes on in this kind of thinking? Why would people think this way? Well, if we begin with this idea, if something we can connect with in an external fashion, if we can touch unclean things, if we can use unwashed cooking utensils, uh, if that's the case, if that's going to contaminate us and make us morally defiled, well, how much more eating could make us morally defiled. Because if touching something externally will cause some kind of unholiness to come inside of us, how much more we touch food with unwashed hands, which makes the food then defiled, and then you actually eat it and take it into yourself, how much more that would defile you. In fact, the idea here is that there's nothing that could defile you more than eating defiled food. It would be like the maximal amount of defilement. Now, think about this for a moment. All this seems strange to us, and it should. Unless you were re raised in a legalistic cult that had these kind of food laws. Unless you were an old-fashioned Roman Catholic, and you also had very strict food laws in your old way of living. There were Catholics who would find their conscience deeply violated if on Fridays they ate any other kind of meat other than fish. They would feel unholy before God. Think about the Apostle Peter, Acts chapter 10. That's the story where Peter is up on the roof, falls into a trance. This big sheet comes down out of heaven and has all this unclean food on it. And a voice from heaven says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, that's great for all the NRA people. That's great for all the hunters in the crowd. But that's not the real point here. <laughs> the real point is, is that all of the animals seen on the sheet that was brought down from heaven happened to be those species of animals that the Old Testament law had declared to be unclean. And the voice from heaven says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, of course, that kind of revelation from heaven was to convince Peter that he could have table fellowship with Gentiles. But Peter's reaction to that was like this, by no means, Lord. He's telling God, no, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter's reaction is a kind of measurement of how seriously this whole thing of clean and unclean happened to be to the Jews. Why they so easily thought that transgressing these laws brought moral defilement. How they thought if I happen to eat a slice of bacon, I am morally condemned. Happy, but morally condemned. <laughs> now, we move on then to verses 14 and 50 where Jesus summons the people to him. And these were the ones who were most impacted by the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
and he's going to make this claim. The claim he makes entirely contradicts the tradition. He says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. So that's the first part of verse 15. In other words, Jesus is saying that the external act of eating, what a person's going to take into his body, that can't defile him morally. It cannot make him morally unacceptable to God. And you can infer then the underlying logic of this. It's, it's the logic of the greater case to the lesser case. If what we touch with unwashed hands and eat with unwashed hands does not defile us in the eyes of God, then, of course, nothing that we simply touch would ever defile us with God. If, if the eating of food can't defile us with God, then nothing we physically come in contact with or touch can defile us with God. Because of all the things that we might touch, it's only food that can actually come inside of us. If food can't defile us, then nothing else we would have in contact with could ever defile us. It's the impeccable logic of reasoning from the greater to the lesser that Jesus is actually promoting here. Well, what that means is that nothing in and of itself in this world is by its very nature defiling to us. And so Jesus then points out, where does real defilement come from? Second half of verse 15, he says, But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. In other words, moral defilement is not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. And then verses 17 to 20, Jesus has to address the disciples. It is very interesting, the disciples, when Jesus has them just alone, say to him, "Uh, Can you explain this parable to us? Now, normally a parable is some kind of a figure of speech that isn't necessarily transparent. It's not plain. What could be more plain than what Jesus has said here? The the use of parable on their minds indicates the density of, of where they were spiritually. They just weren't getting it yet. So Jesus is going to make it even plainer to them by spelling it out according to basic biology. He's going to say, look, food cannot morally defile a person because it goes where? It goes into the stomach. Literally, the the text says, into the bowels. After that, it's eliminated. And then Jesus says, it doesn't go into the heart. Now, the heart here is both a biological phenomenon, but it's also used all the way through the Bible as the seat of the soul. It's, It's the place where spiritually and morally and even intellectually, we operate. So food to the stomach, out. It can't defile at all because it can never wind up. The impact can never wind up within the heart. Now, Mark says, by this statement, Jesus declared all food to be clean. <coughs> clean, not in just light of the tradition of the elders, but really clean according to the law of Moses. In other words, Mark is here referring to the fact that In the ministry of Jesus, and what Jesus says here, we have one aspect of that barrier wall that separated Jew from Gentile to be absolutely struck down uh, as a one aspect of that greater picture that with the coming of Christ, every barrier between Jew and Gentile was going to be struck down. And yet, the Apostle Peter, several years into the Christian experience after the day of Pentecost and preaching, it takes him several years to really get it. Five or six years before, G, before Peter actually understands that God is going to accept Jew and Gentile 
upon the same ground by faith in Christ. Now, coming to the last point here, verses 21 to 23. Jesus delivers the great blow to legalism at this point, which is to set forth the biblical understanding of human evil. Human evil is not found in the outer and external actions we perform, but human evil has its source in the human heart, in the inner soul of who we are. Human evil is most essentially a matter of the heart. Now, we're just going to scratch the surface as I wrap up this morning. It deserves a much fuller treatment. We'll pick this up next week. But let me draw some immediate conclusions from this statement of what Jesus made, because Jesus says it's what comes out of the heart. First of all, because this is true, that the source of human evil is the heart, it is unbiblical. It is false for us to say that human evil is located in particular things or in particular actions or especially in human institutions apart from the persons that are involved in those actions or in those institutions. You have this stated again and again and again that it's the institution of, let's say, capitalism that's evil. Or it's the institution of this that's evil. Or the institution of that that's evil. If you're a biblical Christian, you would never say such a thing. Never. You would never say that evil exists abstractly in, in institutions. You would say, no, evil only exists and always exists where there's human people involved. It isn't the structure of capitalism that's a problem, just like it's not the structure of socialism that's the problem. It is, in fact, the human people who are involved in it that are the problem. Honestly, perfect people, you could have socialism. Right? You could. There are no perfect people. And if you had perfect people, capitalism wouldn't hurt people, would it? Because you wouldn't have that thing that they say is the engine of capitalism, human greed. So as biblical Christians, understand that when we destroy legalism, we destroy what legalism says about evil. And legalism says about evil that it's never in the human heart, it's in something else. Jesus responds by saying, the essence of evil is found in the human heart. That's where all of these things come. Secondly, because this is true, that human evil is not found in the outer and external actions we perform, but human evil has its source in the human heart, in the inner soul of who we are, because this is true, the answer to human evil must always be Christ. It must be the gospel. It must be that human beings must be born again. Now, I remember vividly my first year in college, even though it was way back in 70 and 71, but that was the Vietnam War era at its height. That was the uh, anti-protest, uh, the protest in the war movement. Uh, it was great campus unrest, and the, the mantra of the day was, down with the establishment, down with the establishment. And the idea was that the establishment conceived of abstractly, was itself evil. Uh, the idea was that war abstractly was evil. 
the idea was everything that was going on in some abstract sense was evil. And if we just got rid of this institution and erected the right institution, everything would be fine. And I remember then the profoundest sense, seeing this day after day after day on campus in all the different ways of thinking, the only solution here is a change of heart that only happens when a person is born again, when a person is transformed into a follower of Christ. My deepest political convictions, my deepest moral convictions about human evil politically, human evil personally, were formed during that first year as I understood the gospel and saw again and again and again, it's, it's not the establishment, folks. It's the people who run it, and they're evil human beings. But you, too, who protest all of this, have the same heart problem. It also spoke to me powerfully that technology in and of itself is never evil. But it's people with evil intent who use technology in an evil way. I think of all the educators that I've, uh, that I've had in my churches over the years, and I've said, do you know that one of the most dangerous technologies ever invented was reading? Without reading, there would have been no reason for... Adolf Hitler to have written Mein Kampf or Marx and Engels, the Communist Manifesto or Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals. Right? It's not the technology in and of itself. It's the people who use it. It's what people do because of the evil in their hearts with the things that they're able to create. The only answer, again, is the gospel, regeneration, having God change us. The third implication is this. Even though we ought to know that legalism is a false understanding of good and evil, yet we, Christians, we, still continue to lapse into legalism in the moral judgments we make. Uh, this shows up immediately when we judge what people do rather than asking what might be the reason why they're doing this particular thing. We look to the action. Rather than asking ourselves what might be the condition of the heart, we do this in situations where people seem to be doing good things as much as not good things. Now, let me give you some biblical examples. For instance, the Pharisees always had the courage to pray in public. Have you ever been afraid of pray, praying in public? Have you ever thought you might be embarrassed to pray in a restaurant before eating? Someone might see me. Not the Pharisees. Pharisees never were afraid to pray in public. In fact, remember Jesus said the Pharisees were so courageous to pray in public that they would bring trumpeters along with them that whenever they were going to pray, the trumpets would sound and they would pray in public so everyone would see how brave and righteous and good they were. And Jesus said, you hypocrites, you are doing this to be seen by men, not because you're truly righteous in what you're doing. Bill Gates is the richest man in the world most of the time. It goes up and down, but most of the time. He's also the world's greatest philanthropist, which means he has given away more billions of dollars than anyone else. 
how do we know this? How in the world do I know this, that Bill Gates has given away more billions of dollars than anyone else in the world? Because he's told us. He's told us. His uh, Bill and, uh, and uh, what's Ms. Melissa, what's her name? Meredith? Melinda. Melinda. Melinda Gates Foundation is on the website. You can go to it and find out. There's the philanthropy website. You can go and find out. You can see all of this. You can see exactly how much he's given away. Back in 2010, when he and Warren Buffett got together to set up this foundation, they called a great big news conference to say, we are going to give away this many billions of dollars. And we challenge all the other wealthy people in the world to do likewise. I'm the example. I'm the first. I'm doing it. I'm setting the pace. You all need to do what I do. Now, look, he's not a Christian. I get it. He's not looking for approval from God. He's looking for approval from men. I get it. But it's interesting that what Jesus has to say in the list of vices he gives here, what he talks about, what comes out of the heart, you'll see the word pride. What is pride? It's always the desire and willingness to publish the things we do that are good so other people take notice of who we are. So when we make judgments, even when we judge what a great guy Bill Gates is for giving away billions of dollars, we are making that judgment according to moral legalism. We are making a legalistic judgment. We're not looking at the condition of his heart. We're not asking whether there's anything inside of his heart that would, that would be troublesome to God. We're simply looking at it like every other legalist has ever looked at these things in the history of the human race. We look at the ex exactly what he does, not why he does it. Look at the actions of Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Now here we have Judas. We're talking about when, when, when Mary broke the bottle of expensive perfume and anointed the feet of Jesus, uh, John chapter 12. And Judas comes along and says, why did she do this? This, is like, this? this could have been sold and all the money given to the poor. Now, in terms of a judgment, we could say, if we were one of those, yeah, Judas, you're right, great insight. Wow, we, should have been, we could have been helping so many people with this money. Uh, but what was, what was Judas's real reason? He held the money bags. He was a thief. He used to pilfer it. Of course he wanted it sold because he wanted the money to go in the money bag so he could steal it. So on outwardly, his statement looked pretty good. Inwardly, his statement was rotten. And, of course, Jesus, who reads all men's hearts, said this of Mary. Why did Mary do this? Because she was doing something foolish? No. He knew that her action was validated because of the great love that she had for Jesus. This great love motivated her to do this. Jesus looked at the action. Jesus looked at the heart and said, this is why she shall always be remembered because she has done this in light of my burial to come. The point is this. Every one of us is apt to act and to think like a legalist and the way we conduct our affairs in life, the way we look at other human beings. I think of how many times I've read the statement, whether it's D.L. Moody or one of those guys who saw someone who was uh, on the streets of one of the big cities, Chicago someplace, 
he had seen this guy again and again, and he was a constant drunk, constant drunk, constant drunk. And Moody goes, there but for the grace of God go I. The judgment that, sure, that man is in a very, very sad situation, but what made me to differ? The grace of God. What has made us as Christians to differ? Not our ability to perform to the law of God, but it's the rescue that the grace of God has done for us. So we conclude with David's prayer, Psalm 139, verses 23-24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any gravest way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. If we want to understand evil, sadly, all we need to do is shed light upon our own hearts. If we want to understand the solution and answer, we have to look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we have no hope except in you and in your grace. And make us those who can see legalism within our own hearts and lives and give us more of Jesus, more of the gospel, more of grace, that we might have a better message than the world. It's not down with institutions, but it's down with our own pride and evil and turning to Jesus. This is the message that all men need. And we need it too. In Christ's name, amen.